following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Okay, so we're now in the second week of this three-week series on the book of Philippians. And uh, Chris Sullivan kicked us off last week. Thank you, Chris. Would you thank Chris with me? What a great job he did last week. Um, a member of Artisan's College of Preachers. And next week, Colleen will get to conclude the series for us, and I'm really looking forward to her message as well. As we begin today, we're going to be looking at at Philippians chapter 2, but as we begin, I want to show you a picture of a Roman coin. So the series is based on Paul's letter to the church, the Christian church in the city of Philippi which was a Roman colony. So the people of of the colony of Philippi, the city of Philippi, would have used a coin very much like this to buy their bread. and uh, This would have been a very common sight in the city of Philippi. And you can see that the the coin has the image of a man's head on it, much like our coins do today. This particular head belongs to Caesar, Caesar, the emperor, the Roman emperor, the ruler of the entire known world at that time. And can you make out the inscription on the coin? Can you see it? It says, Divus Claudius Augustus. So Claudius Augustus is the name of the emperor. That's Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And who knows their Latin? What does the adjective divus mean? Divine, right. This is the masculine form because Caesar is a dude. The feminine form would be diva, as in diva Aretha Franklin. (laughs) But as wonderful as Aretha is, uh, she's not what I want to talk about today. Although we do have to talk about that cover of the Adele song, but we can't do that right now. Um, I want to talk about Caesar today, well, and um, Jesus too, but... Um, <clears throat> so the reason that the Roman coin was inscribed with this particular phrase, Divus Claudius Augustus, divine Caesar Augustus, was that Roman empires were so highly regarded as to be thought of almost like little gods. They were divine. The phrase, Caesar is Lord, was the the motto of the empire, right? And Roman rulers, and sometimes even their families, their whole households, were understood to be made into little gods upon their death. There's actually a term for this. The term is apotheosis. This is a term that is Greek in origin, so you have the prefix apo, which means from... And you see the word theos or theos, which means God. And then the suffix is is or cis, which is like the process of being made into something, kind of like metamorphosis is the process of changing your shape. Apotheosis was the, the process of a, a, a deceased Roman ruler and his household becoming a god. So let me explain this to you. In the Roman Empire... The ruler, the Caesar, was a human being 
who was regarded as Lord and called Lord, and was exalted, lifted up in death to divine stature. Right, I'm going to say that again, and we'll put it on the screen here so you can see it. Caesar is a human being who's known as Lord, who upon his death is exalted or lifted up to divine stature. That's apotheosis. And I want you to keep that in mind as we turn in our Bibles to the text for today, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And uh, if you brought your own Bible, that probably means you're good enough at Bible stuff to find Philippians. But if you didn't bring your own and want to use one of our red Bibles, you can look at page 954. We sometimes say, maybe not often enough, that if you don't own a Bible, please take one of these red ones with you when you go. It is our gift to you. And if you do own a Bible, maybe bring it with you once in a while to church. I don't know. That was like an expectation when I was a kid, that you would bring your Bible. You don't go into battle without your sword, do you? Um, Flashbacks indeed. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, my friend. <laughs> Church culture is weird, man. All right. So I want to read, um, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. This is, remember, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy... Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And I want to pause right there at the end of verse 4. Because that alone would make for a beautiful moral teaching, wouldn't it? A beautiful teaching that everybody could adopt. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to believe anything in particular about Jesus to adopt this teaching and have it change your life. And yes, if everybody adopted it, it would change the world. Striving for unity. Living in love. Practicing selflessness. Caring for the interests of others. It's a beautiful teaching that would change the world if we all applied it. And yet it's very difficult to apply this particular message. Isn't it? Selflessness does not come naturally to us, does it? It runs counter to... Evolutionary instincts to put the needs of others ahead of our own. We are born with the great sins of selfishness and pride stamped on our souls. And any way you slice it, through the disciplines of biology or theology, there's just something in our innate being the way that we're wired, that makes these teachings hard to apply. Even if we find them deeply admirable. And even with Paul's 
opening salvo, verse 1, where he seems to say, if your faith means anything to you, if you've had any benefit from, from this, this is the response that you should give. That alone is perhaps not enough to convince us to change our ways. It's not enough to inspire us to make a meaningful change in our lives. And so Paul goes further in his effort to convince the people that this is the way they should live. Much further, actually. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So he's about to say, if your own sense of belonging and blessing is not enough to motivate you to put others' needs ahead of your own, consider the example of Jesus himself. This is the original Jesus juke. It's entirely appropriate because it's Scripture. It's not like they were talking about board games and then Jesus juked him. It's right here in the middle of a Christian text, so it's, 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 it's appropriate to raise the name of Jesus as rationale for something. Let's read on. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so wow. This passage is full and rich and dense. And it has a little bit of everything. It offers an amazing theological reflection on who Jesus is. I mean, this is like a porterhouse steak of theology for theology nerds. And it's poetry. You see that um, if you're using the same edition that I just read from, and probably regardless of what edition you're reading from, it's indented. Right? So it has stanzas and lines and, and meter. If you look at the Greek, it actually does have a meter to it. As a matter of fact, most scholars agree that this is actually not just a poem, but an early Christian hymn that Paul is quoting in his letter to the Philippians. And by the way, when you combine both of those things about this text, the, the dense Christological theolo- theology and the fact that it's a, a, a citation of a hymn that apparently had already been written and was already in use even at the time that this letter was written, which itself was only a few decades after Christ's death, you have a pretty compelling piece of evidence about what the early Christians actually did believe about Jesus immediately following his death. So there's commonly this charge that um, early Christians didn't believe Jesus was God. That's something they made up in like the 4th century to um, uh, extend mind control over the Roman Empire after, after um, the conversion of Constantine. Well, the conversion of Constantine was a gigantic problem for Christianity in the world, but that's not the point. The accusation that 
that Christians made up Jesus' divinity in, in 325 at the Council of Nicaea or something is, is completely baseless. It's absurd. Whatever you could say about the problems with what happened in the church in the 4th century, one of them is, that you cannot say with intellectual honesty is that Christians suddenly made up the idea that, that they were going to worship Jesus as God. That's also what I, not what I want to talk about today. So I want to take a closer look at the first couple of verses in this hymn. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself. Now the word for emptying in Greek is kenosis. You take the Greek verb kenoo, which means to empty, and you put that suffix at the end of it, sis, that I talked about a minute ago, and you have kenosis. This whole section of Scripture is known as the kenosis hymn because it refers to Jesus emptying himself. So Caesar, remember, the emperor, was believed to undergo apotheosis, which is becoming a god. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus willingly underwent the opposite problem, kenosis, emptying himself. Verses 7 and 8. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's the rationale that Paul gives for why Christian believers should be selfless. If Christ, who was God, is willing to empty himself and take on human form and submit to human death, a painful, humiliating death, then how can we look to our own interests ahead of others? How bad would we look boasting about our own accomplishments? What possible excuse could we make for denying help to those who are in need? What leg would we have to stand on as people who claim to follow Jesus? But this is more than just a moral lesson. This kenosis hymn contains a a religious lesson and also a deeply countercultural political lesson. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the last three verses of the passage, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God also highly exalted him. Remember, exalt means to lift up. God also exalted him. Why also? Well, I am not an expert in reading the Greek text, and so I want you to take what I'm about to say with a slight grain of salt. But what I see um, as a person who's drawn to literature and juxtaposition and and that kind of device is like a second lifting, a second exaltation. Who, Who did the first lifting of Jesus? Well, look at the words that come right before that verse. They speak of 
death on a cross. Do you remember when we were doing the flannel graph series and uh, we talked about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and there was the, the, there was the pestilence of, of poisonous serpents who would, were biting people and they were dying from the poison and the solution that God gave was for Moses to erect uh, a bronze casting of a serpent on a pole and then anybody who was bitten by the curse of this snake could look up to the, the pole that had been lifted up in the community, and they would be made well. And I made the reference to Christ on the cross because Jesus himself in John 3, and he's talking to to Nicodemus on the rooftop, refers to this event and says, Just as Moses lifted up the the serpent in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now the word in that passage is the same word. Exalted. Lifted up. So the Roman Empire lifted Jesus up onto a cross and God also exalted him. But he didn't just exalt him. Paul puts a little prefix on there. The prefix is, prefix is awesome. It's hyper. <laughs> I love this prefix. He hyper exalted him. <laughs> he lifted him super duper high. <laughs> he lifted him way, way up. See, the empire thought that they could lift him up onto a cross and put him away. But God lifted him up higher. He hyper-exalted him. And what else did he do? What it says next is, he gave him the name that is above every other name. Why is this significant? Can we take a look at that coin again? Whose name is on this coin? Caesar's name. Claudius Augustus. The emperor's... You don't get your name on a coin by accident. The name of the emperor was the highest name. But God gave Jesus the name that is above all the other names. This is a deeply subversive statement to make to a bunch of Christians, many of whom were Roman veterans, in a colony of the empire. And man, if you don't hold me back, I'm going to go on a 20-minute rabbit trail about Jesus' kingdom not being of this world and how we look to the principalities and rulers and politics as a solution for the problems of the world and a way to express our faith, which is completely ass-backwards because Jesus' Empire, Jesus' kingdom, is not of the world. It is not the empire. And yeah, that was true in the Roman Empire, Pastor Scott, but we live in America. We sing every seventh inning for God to bless America. Uh Hold me back. I'm about to go there. Hold me back. I don't want to tell you why I don't stand during the seventh inning. I don't want to tell you. I do. I do. I want to tell you so bad. (laughs) But we have to keep going. We must press on toward the goal. Remembering what is ahead. God hyper-exalted Jesus. Did I just make the raise the roof sign? Yes, I did. God hyper-exalted Jesus and gave him the name that was above every name. Above Caesar Augustus' name. Above Abe Lincoln's name. 
above Barack Obama's name, even above Ronald Reagan's name. Let me show you the little equation that I had before. Remember this. Remember what happens to the Caesar, to the emperor, in the minds of the Roman citizenry. Caesar is a human being who they call Lord, who upon his death is exalted, is lifted up to divine stature. Now let me show you what happens with Jesus. Jesus was God. Jesus emptied himself to humanity. That is called kenosis. Jesus was exalted, lifted up onto a cross, and then he's exalted as Lord. The true Lord is Jesus, not the emperor. That is the God we worship. That's the Lord we serve. That is the model for our entire lives. See, in our private moments and in our family, in our church community, in our city, and in our world, we are constantly pulled toward pride and selfishness, we are all striving with great ambition toward our own apotheosis. We're going to get what we need. i got to take care of me and mine. I'm going to become my own little God or at least as close as I can get. And that posture destroys everything. It ruins God's good design for the world. But Christ on the cross shows us a better way. He offers Himself. He empties Himself. He submits Himself. He humbles Himself. He allows Himself to be killed by the empire. And it repairs everything. It restores God's good design for the world. It turns the twisted selfishness of humanity and empire on its head and buries it in the grave and leaves it behind when he emerges alive. And so if the good comforts of Christian community, if the sharing in the Spirit is not enough to convince you to live in humility and selflessness and to place the needs of others ahead of your own, then perhaps you should stop thinking about your own comforts and your own connection to community. And you should start thinking about the separation and pain and submission to death that was the example of Christ our Lord. Because if you do that, and if you step into that stream, and if you're carried away on the waters of His grace, that's when things start to get better in the world. And it's a process that has been going, and in which we can continue to participate, and which will come to fruition at some point in the future. When you look to Jesus and his sacrifice, to the fact that he allowed the empire to kill him for the sake of the world, 
then you have no choice, in my opinion, but to do the same. Let's pray. God, you sent your son Jesus, who emptied himself, humbled himself, presented himself as a sacrifice for us, and we are grateful. We look to Christ on the cross, and we see the ultimate act of self-sacrifice, of selflessness. May we, by the power of your Spirit, have just a little bit of courage to begin to take that same cross on ourselves, to lift it up and to lift him up, to lower ourselves, to place the needs of others ahead of our own for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Our communion table has placed upon it the elements of kenosis. The bread which represents Christ's body broken for you and for me. The cup which contains the wine and the juice. His blood shed for all humanity. He emptied himself and gave up his body. And it is here for us this morning to partake of. This is our response to hearing the word proclaimed every week at Artisan. And you don't need to be a member of our church to partake and participate in this beautiful ancient Christian ritual of grace. You just need to be looking to Jesus on the cross. And he's right here, uh, a representation visually and in the elements of bread and wine. We'll continue to worship God together in song. And if you'd like personalized prayer, the prayer team will be here. The Spirit may be speaking to each of you in different ways. I would only ask that you respond however he may be speaking in your life. Our table is open. Come and receive the good grace of the crucified Christ. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.